Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome back to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. And today we're going to be talking about construction controversies. Dun, 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 dun. Um, specifically, we're talking about two plans that were announced this year to renovate both the Frick Collection and the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. The proposals have resulted in a lot of outcry. Um, critics have pointed out that these renovations are not really going to fix any problems or add to the buildings in any significant ways. And in fact, they might actually be detracting from uh, what makes these buildings uh, unique and valuable. So uh, we're going to go over the debate. Um, and in order to place this debate in some type of context, we thought it would be helpful to rewind and talk about the history of the buildings of both of these museums. Uh, and we're talking about these two specifically because, as Tina said, um, these are new announcements that have come out just this year. But it's part of a, a broader debate about sort of the function of, of museums. So these are only two of a number of, of major and controversial renovations that uh, have happened in recent years. And actually, I just saw yesterday that they're doing a huge uh, expansion of Mass MoCA. We, we're seeing a, a large shift in how society envisions the, the functions and capacities of public museums. Um, Another example of this would be the the ongoing debate over the Warburg Institute in mm -hmm. London, which is now you know basically come to lawsuits. So right, and it just... also ties back to our very first episode on the Detroit Institute of Arts. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to start our discussion today with the Frick Collection, uh, founded by Henry Clay Frick, who was a major capitalist at the end of the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. At one point, he was the um, uh, largest holder of railroads in the country. Um, associated with um, Carnegie uh, and and his industries, as well as J.P. Morgan. So a really uh, wealthy, powerful guy. In 1905, he builds a summer mansion for himself outside of Boston, 104 rooms, um, but at the same time decides that he also wants to uh, set down uh, in New York City. And he occupies, he rents out uh, William H. Vanderbilt's mansion on Fifth Avenue at 52nd Street. And uh, at the time, uh, Vanderbilt's son had placed his father's art collection on a long-term loan to the Met. And I, I think it's sort of interesting to think about the psychology that um, Frick had actually hung prints of Vanderbilt's collection in his house when he was younger. Um, so now he's living in Vanderbilt's house. Vanderbilt's art collection is in the Met. So you can imagine that Frick has these aspirations where he wants to also make a name for himself with his art collection in this city. And just to put the Met into context a bit, it was only founded in 1870. So it's still a relatively new and, and growing institution at this time. Yeah. So um, Frick will, uh, the same year that he leases out this house on Fifth Avenue, decides that he's going to build a new house for himself. 
up on 70th Street. So he buys property up there. Um, it actually was a, a building, uh, the Lennox Library. He buys that in 1906. Um, so even the origin of the Frick isn't tearing down another institution, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what I want to highlight today is the way that these renovations that um, people are really up in arms about in 2014 are in fact part of a much longer history of tearing down and rebuilding buildings. That this is not the first time this has happened. Um, so um, he buys this property. Um, he hires uh, Thomas Hastings of the firm Carrer and Hastings to be his architect. And this guy was really um, New York's leading Beaux-Arts architect of the period. So um, the Beaux-Arts style is seen as a kind of neoclassicism going back to the kind of architecture that you would associate with, say, the Parthenon. Um, and if you haven't listened to our episode on the Elgin Marbles, you can learn a little bit more about classical style from that podcast. Um, the original building was a uh, pretty low lying made of Indiana limestone, um, and yet was estimated by the times at the period to cost about two to $3 million, which in, um, you know, 1913, 1914 money, which is when the structure actually went up is, is quite a bit. What's notable about the Frick collection, um, in comparison to some other historic townhomes, um, that have now become museums and you can see some of these around the world, um, is that it was originally designed to be a museum. So when Frick builds this house, he is thinking already about the fact that after his death, he wants it to become a museum open to the public. So his will um, from 1915 actually lays out the terms. It says that the structure will be, quote, for the use and benefit of all persons whomsoever, and quote, for the purpose of encouraging and developing the study of the fine arts and of advancing the general knowledge of kindred subjects. So if you look at the original architecture of the building, you'll notice that instead of a traditional grand ballroom that you would expect to have in the you know, mansion of somebody of Frick's caliber of this period, you actually have a picture gallery. That's the biggest room in the house, and it's 100 feet long and 35 feet wide. So they officially move into this house in 1915, and it's their primary home um, where uh, Frick lives with his wife Adelaide and his daughter Helen and um, their 27 servants. Within four months of his death in 1919, the Frick Collection incorporates and will immediately start um, undertaking plans to turn the house into uh, a museum. They also start laying out plans for a library, the Frick Reference Library, which will actually open to the public in 1924, even though Frick's widow, Adelaide, is still living in the house. Um, up until her death in 1931. So it's once both Frick and his wife have passed on that the home starts to be renovated to become a, a museum in its totality. The architect that they hire to do this transformation will be John Russell Pope, um, who is a, 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 a neoclassical architect, again, working in that style um, that basically modernizes classical antiquity. His nickname was uh, the last of the Romans, right? So I mean, he's doing this renovation in the, the 30s, like 1932, 1935, when we've got skyscrapers, when we've got Art Deco, and here's this guy who's still working with columns, right? So sort of idiosyncratic. And the general consensus is that Pope's additions to the Frick Mansion to turn it into a museum were really genius. He was able to extend the square footage of the property in a way that made the additions seamless. Um, and in fact, some of the rooms that you might um, 
if you've been to the Frick, think of as central to the Frick, as part of the Frick property, as integral to um, the Frick home, in fact, were his additions. They were never part of the original property. So this includes um, the Oval Room, the East Gallery, the Music Room, and that interior garden court that's so famous. So if you've never been to the Frick, there's, um, you know, right when you come in, there's this uh, beautiful um, covered garden with fountains and plants. Um, so that was an, another one of those additions that he made in the 30s. Wasn't the garden also originally like the driveway? Yeah, it was the porte cochere. It was sort yeah. of a covered driveway where, you, you know, the cars would come in and let people off, um, you know, in protection from and the you weather. And you would never think that going no, in there today. Not at all. It seems like it's the heart of the of the house, like it's the yeah. courtyard around which the house was built, and that's not the case at all. Right. The museum opened to the public in December 1935 and um, obviously, you know, immediately became one of those really important art institutions in New York City. At that point, um, the, the major shifts start to occur around the uh, collecting habits of Frick's daughter, uh, Helen Frick. Um, she becomes the head of the board's acquisition committee, um, and she remains uh, that until 1961. And she was particularly drawn to early Italian art, works by um, artists like Cimabue, Duccio, Piero della Francesca, um, and she also deaccessions, so actually gets rid of um, some of the things that her father had bought, um, that, which she felt were sort of uh, discordant uh, with how she was developing the question, the, the collection. So works by artists like Cezanne and Gauguin, um, and those works are now actually at the Met, which is just up the road. So again, you know, there's this outcry now that these plans are going to completely tear asunder the fabric of the Frick. And yet you'll notice that not only has the building been architecturally renovated multiple times throughout its history, but even the core collection that Frick established was violated by his own daughter, right? So Frick, you know, had gone to, to France and had visited the studios of the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists and hung out with them and bought their works. And that was part of his vision. And here you have his daughter just throwing those works away and buying more of this Italian religious stuff, which is what she was into. And it's interesting when you walk through it, because sort of the na natural progression through the house, you start with many of those early Italian works and you don't get to the Impressionist stuff till the very end. And it almost seems like an afterthought. Right. When in fact, it was sort of the other way around. Right. So the first renovation to the building happens in the 30s. Um, in the 40s, they're already thinking about future um, future renovations, how they have, they just know that they're going to need to continue to grow into new space. So they start acquiring adjacent parcels of land as these townhomes come up for sale on 70th Street. Um, so they buy number five, number seven, number nine. Um, and the plan is that they are going to um, you know demolish these and add a larger auditorium and classrooms. Um, and all of this, you know, really comes out in the 70s. That's when they make these these final plans and how they're going to use this space. But the 70s is a rough time economically in America and especially in New York. So they end up having to cut back on those plans. And um, they build um, the two seminar rooms in the basement down below, which are now used as um, a special exhibition uh, space. They... Um, build the current reception hall, which um, by and large is seen as a total disaster. Um, so just because it's, it's 
really doesn't have enough space. The flow of traffic is very awkward. Whenever there's a big blockbuster show at the Frick, you wind up with a huge queue to check coats and to get tickets, which means um, because there really is no additional space that you wind up with a huge line outside of people standing in inclement weather. Um, yeah, remember when we went to see the girl with the pearl earring show and it was we were lucky enough that we could skip the line, but it was freezing cold outside and there was a line around the block yeah, to I get mean, in. It was it was really terrible. And that's that line actually is one of the reasons that now the Frick is citing for why they need to go forward with these new renovation plans is in order to fix that problem. Um, so this is a problem, again, that was created with the last renovation that happened in the 70s. So you can see, in a sense, why you know, preservationists and architectural critics are a little bit anxious, saying, you know, you've promised us before that your renovations are going to fix things and instead it only made things worse. You know, could that happen again? The latest renovation plans were just announced over the summer of this year. Um, but in fact, they'd been in the works for about 10 years. And basically what they want to do is erase the additions from the 1970s and create new additions that would be more in harmony with the original house and also the Pope editions of the 1930s. And um, the, the main way that they're going to do this is by getting rid of the garden that runs along 70th Street that was created out of those townhomes that they purchased that were adjacent to the property, um, basically they, you know, when they had to scale back their plans, they decided that instead of building buildings on that land, they would just build a little garden. And it's what's known as a viewing garden, meaning that there's no access to it, you can't get to it, but you see it through the gates on 70th Street. And in this sense, it's sort of a pendant to the garden that is along the property on its Fifth Avenue front. Um, and that garden was actually designed by um, Olmsted Jr., so the son of the guy who designed Central Park. So that's also a very um, beloved little viewing garden. But just to be clear, the garden that they're talking about getting rid of is not the one that you see from Fifth Avenue. It's the one that you see from 70th Street. And in fact, this garden is, um, is pretty beloved. Even though you can't go into it, it really has become one of the little gems of of, of space in New York City. Um, and in fact, it is one of those sites that is very heavily Instagrammed. I know I myself, I, I um, was taking a seminar at the Frick um, in the evenings uh, a couple years ago. And, you know, every time either on my way in or out of class, I would have to stop by the garden and take a picture just because it really is um, adorable. And even though it's small, it's just one of those little um, breaths of fresh air and part of the debate you know about losing this garden um, is that people say oh it's beloved it's also you know was designed by this British landscape architect Russell Page towards the end of his life they say it's one of his sort of masterworks you can't get rid of it the frick saying we're next to Central Park we don't need another little garden space it's literally you know 60 steps from Central Park um, but again you know the counterpoint to that is that Every bit of green that we have in New York City is so valuable and precious to us, especially when it's designed by a noted guy, right, and when it's become a sort of icon of the museum. Michael Kimmelman has a, a wonderful retort to this idea that, you know, we've already got Central Park, we don't need another, another green space. Um, Kimmelman said, uh, the Frick has three Vermeers, that's not a reason for them to trade one in. In its defense, the Frick says that it's going to make very good use of this space, um, that it's going to add 24% uh, more space for exhibiting its permanent collection, 
as well as 50% more space for temporary exhibitions. It will also allow them to create a new gift shop, um, new classroom spaces, right? Um, the counterpoint, as uh, Michael Kimmelman has pointed out, is that of all this new space they're getting, so 40,000 new square feet, really only 3,600 of that would be for showing art. And the rest is going to these other things, right? Like, um, you know, a cafe, a gift shop, an auditorium, classroom space. And on the one hand, um, you know, you could say that that space is really important. Again, we've talked about how annoying it is that the there's not more space um, for, you know, a kind of lobby entrance um, for people to be able to circulate. Um, on the other hand, there's a certain kind of anxiety about the direction that this construction represents, that the, that the museum in the future sees its role as being less about creating spaces for viewing art and more about creating spaces for other kinds of activities, which formerly might have been thought of as secondary to the purpose of the museum as an institution, as a cultural institution, but now seem to be actually assuming some type of primary role. So um, in short, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that there, the reason that this um, renovation plan causes so much anxiety is because it represents a very profound change in what we think the purpose of the Frick is. Is it a space where you go to look at art? Or is it a space where you go to see performing events, to see lectures, to attend classes like I did, um, to uh, go to a cafe, right? So um, I think that what the Frick would say is that they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, that they're in no way going to violate the space that they already have. They're just going to be able to expand the services that they offer. At the end of the day, what this debate's really about is is about the nature of the Frick, the kind of, of experience of art that it offers, right? If we are going to say that the most important thing that the Frick does is allow us to look at really important works of art, and that's something I think the Frick would actually agree with, right? That that is their primary mission. Um, what makes the Frick so special, aside from the great masterpieces it contains, is the conditions for viewing those masterpieces, that it is the anti-Met in many ways, right? It has very similar works of art in terms of time period chronology. Its strengths are similar, right? European, Western painting. Um, but it's a house, right? Although, again, as we've talked about, it's not really just a house. There was, you know, the incredible additions that Pope made in the 30s. Um, but the feel of it, what Pope is able to preserve is primarily residential, right? So it's a domestic scale. The rooms are smaller. The the encounter with the work of art is much more intimate, right? One of the sort of legendary things about the Frick is that the works are not roped off. They're not set back. And this is one reason why they don't allow kids under the age of 10 is because it's, it would be very easy to bump into something and knock it off its pedestal or off the wall or scratch it because the works are that close and that accessible and they're not behind all these layers of glass and, and laser alarms. And also in just just the way that it's organized in terms of proximity and relationships of works to n another one. I mean, there's there's a room where you have El Greco's across the way from uh, Bellini and Titian with Chinese porcelains, uh, you know, uh, surrounding them. It's you know you just do, you don't get those those kinds of juxtapositions in an encyclopedic museum like you do in someone's home where they chose the works and chose how they were going to be displayed. In its defense, the Frick has said um, on its website, and I'll quote here. Despite all of these changes, the Frick Collection will retain its gem-like quality. The extraordinary experience of the permanent galleries on the first floor will feel unchanged, 
but will be enhanced by the display of smaller works of art in the mansion's upstairs rooms. A visit to the Frick will still resonate with the comfortable grandeur of the Gilded Age, but will now provide the amenities of a 21st century museum. Speaking of 21st century museums, that may not be the model you want to go for. Um, I think the Ur example of a 21st century museum in New York for a lot of people might be MoMA, um, which uh, is a historic building that just underwent a major uh, renovation in the 21st century that, very similar to the renovation of the Frick in the 70s, was widely seen as a disaster. Um, and uh, the general consensus is that the new plans that MoMA has announced um, for its renovation is the nail in the coffin of MoMA. I mean, literally, I mean, the language is a bit um, hyperbolic or hysterical, but, you know, for example, the critic Jerry Salt has said, you know, this is the end of MoMA. MoMA is dead to me. So uh, I want to push back some of the some of the rhetoric, the, the hyperbole, and see what really is going on with MoMA. And um, again, to put it in a kind of historical context to say, okay, well, you know, in how does this relate to earlier changes that the museum has undergone? So MoMA founded in 1929 um, and actually moved three times in its first decade alone before landing in 1939 at the location it has today um, in an international style building um, at 11 West 53rd Street. So international style, international modern, um, you know, your typical modern sort of skyscraper type of structure, right, with all of that glass and all of that steel, all of that metal, right? It's just a very austere, um, severe, minimalist, boxy kind of style. Um, and MoMA really helped make that style famous. It's it's your quintessential white cube, at least on the inside, the white cube gallery spaces. Right. So this is this is another thing about MoMA that's radical, not only its exterior architecture, right? So it's a, I mean, think about the major spaces for looking at art in New York, right? Think about the Met and the Frick, um, you know, that predate MoMA. Those spaces are Beaux-Arts, they're classical, they look very ornate, they look Gilded Age or the Gilded Age view of classical, you know, antiquity um, as seen through Europe of, you know, the 18th century and mm -hmm. so on. Um, they're very historical. In other words, MoMA is a really radically modern building. So its mission to collect modern art is right there on the outside, but it's also right there on the inside, right? As Sarah mentioned, on the inside, it is a sort of white cube model, um, these boxy rooms, very austere. And, uh, you know, that's important because up until this point, really, the way you would have seen works of art would have been in in much more lush environment, right, with a, a you know, plush carpeting, um, you know, colored, you know, oh, my gosh, the walls were painted in colors. I mean, very, like you see at the Frick or like you see at the Met, right, where yeah. we have, you know, rooms that have green walls and red walls and orange walls, whatever is thought to be um, most appropriate to um, or most advantageous for the display of, you know, the works of art in that room. So um, MoMA is modern inside and out. Um, in the 50s and 60s, it undergoes expansions by the really famous architect, Philip Johnson, who added um, the uh, annex um, that was actually then destroyed in the 70s, um, as well as the um, Rockefeller Sculpture Garden, um, which we still have today. Another major renovation happens in the 80s, um, designed by the architect uh, Cesar Pelli. He adds the new West Wing and expands that sculpture garden, doubling the museum's gallery space um, and also enhancing the visitor facilities. Um, and it's right around this time in the 80s, which is roughly MoMA's 50th birthday, when it starts wondering exactly what its mission really is. It has a little bit of an identity crisis. 
So it's founded to be a museum of modern art. And modern is a tricky word because it has both a temporal and a stylistic register, right? So on the one hand, modern in the 1930s meant the art of today. Modern eventually gained a stylistic connotation that modern art was the art of the 20, 20th century, the early 20th century in particular, of the, the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And then by the 60s, we start to have the emergence of something that will eventually be called the postmodern. And so really, by the time we're in the 1980s, we're in the in the full throes of this movement called postmodernism, which we see in philosophy and history and in the arts. And there's a sense of, you know, what do we mean when we say we are a museum of modern art? Does that mean art of the now with the now always changing to be whatever the current year is? Or does it mean the art of this period called the modern period of the 20th century? Um, I find it pretty fascinating that actually when MoMA was created, it had an agreement with the Met to continually give or sell off its works to the Met so that it would continually have a collection of fresh objects. It wasn't meant to be a kind of mausoleum for the modern style. The, obviously, you know, MoMA's thought about this and um, has come forward with um, some position statements that I think are worth quoting. So Glenn D. Lowry, um, MoMA's longtime director, said, um, quote, a number of options were available to us from ceasing to collect contemporary art altogether, never a serious possibility, he notes, to establishing a separate museum for contemporary art, which, however, in establishing a division between the earliest and the most recent works in the collection would have created more problems than it solved. Um, and uh, this same idea is, is put forward by Kirk Varnado, um, a major curator at MoMA, who wrote in 2000, quote, there is an argument to be made that the revolutions that originally produced modern art in the late 19th and early 20th centuries have not been concluded or superseded, and thus that contemporary art today can be understood as the ongoing extension and revision of those founding innovations and debates. The collection of the Museum of Modern Art is, in a very real sense, that argument. So basically, um, you know, they're saying that, yeah, there maybe was a sense that modern art ended, but in fact, modern art didn't really end. In order to fulfill this mission, MoMA underwent a major renovation in 2001 to 2006, um, where they basically redesigned the space in order to make it a museum of modern and contemporary art. And I remember when this was going on because I was actually an intern at... PS1 in the summer of 2004 and PS1 was a contemporary art center in Queens or still is that was basically annexed by MoMA in 2000 so that's part of their mission to become a museum of modern and contemporary was they absorbed was really you know one of the the two major spaces for contemporary art in New York City um, so uh it, it really was a, a bit of a bummer actually to be at PS1 in 2004 because MoMA itself wasn't open. It was, it was closed for this whole long period. That renovation was designed by uh, a, an architect named Yoshio Taniguchi. And um, Taniguchi redid both the western part of the site, which houses the exhibition galleries, and also the eastern part of MoMA's property, which is where you'll now find um, the Coleman Education and Research Building, which is where you have the classroom facilities um, and also the, the archives and a lot of the offices. One of the most notable things about his design of um, the western part, the exhibition galleries, is that he framed all of the exhibition space around a center atrium, which he called a vortex, um, that was basically designed to allow there to be a kind of visual communication or connection between the different floors, right? And this is important because 
MoMA's laid out the, the, the permanent collection is laid out chronologically. So you start the story of modern art with the post-impressionists at the end of the 19th century on the fifth floor. And then as you move through those fifth floor galleries, you move through time, and then you come down to the fourth floor. And when you do that, suddenly you're in New York City in the 1940s, when New York, to quote the title of a, a book about this, quote, stole the idea of modern art um, away from, from Paris, basically. So you're in the 1940s in America, and then you keep winding through the fourth floor, and you eventually will wind up um, pretty much in the 1970s, sometimes the 1980s, depending what they have up. And then at that point, you're supposed to come all the way downstairs to the second floor, where there are uh, uh, exhibition spaces off of this center lobby. And that's normally where contemporary art is housed, which is roughly defined by MoMA's art since 1980. Sometimes they also have major special exhibitions there. And then the atrium itself is always given over to an enormous work of art, usually an installation or a sculpture by a, a contemporary artist. So when you're in this atrium, you can not only look at whatever um, special work is on view, you can also look up and see the other floors of the museum. Um, Taniguchi put in um, windows, so you can actually look in and see people um, looking at art. You can't really see what they're looking at, but you can see people moving around. You can also see stairwells where people are moving in between floors. So again, it creates a kind of visual connection between all of the different levels of the museum, fulfilling that mission you know, that Varnado laid out of connecting modern to contemporary art. There's a really great critic, um, an art historian named Hal Foster, who wrote a pretty damning um, essay about this new renovation. Um, he, he actually thought that the lack of connection between the second floors and the fourth and fifth floor was really troubling. He says basically they're not connected enough. And he says it's, quote, unclear how an artist might ascend to modernist heaven or be cast down to contemporary purgatory. In short, the contemporary galleries come across as a prehistorical holding pen, a space without a story, end quote. He ultimately says that if MoMA's desire was to bring together modern and contemporary, the architecture of the space really fails to do that in a way that makes a happy marriage. Um, he says, quote, it's a shotgun marriage that looks like a Cinderella ball. That's sort of the the critical response to the structure. I think the more pedestrian response, quite literally, so the response that that um, the average Joe might have when they go to MoMA is that it's not a fun place to walk around. Um, it's incredibly crowded, and while the the vortex has this cool circulation, maybe visually between the floors, the actual circulation of bodies in space is always jammed. Um, and the way that one does circulate between the floors, if you're a regular Joe, is you take the escalators from one floor to the next. And this takes forever. It's super inefficient. Yeah, I have to work up the courage every time I go to MoMA. And as a result, I don't go as often as I should. So MoMA has now hired the firm Diller, Scafidio, and Renfro to do its next renovation. So remember, it's last, I mean, it just reopened in, 20, in 2004. So it's only 10 years since its last renovation. And already they're, they're needing to overhaul the whole space again. Diller, Scafidio, and Renfro is a really interesting choice for MoMA. Um, they were not traditionally known as architects of museum spaces. They are a sort of avant-garde architectural firm that is also sort of a design firm and, and in its own way, kind of like an, an artistic practice. Um, they have recently, though, designed some pretty major 
architectural and urban spaces. These include the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. Um, they designed the, the brand new space that they moved into on the, on the Boston waterfront. And also the High Line here in New York, which of course has been pretty much a universal hit. Um, everybody loves it. And what's really interesting about the High Line is that it tips us off to the fact that one thing this firm is really interested in is the concept of, quote, adaptive reuse. In other words, finding a way to take a space and to create something new out of it that is of more value than um, whatever it was most recently, but that still honors its history um, and, and, and its sense of sort of local space. Yeah, they referred to... Uh, their design for the High Line as wanting to preserve the romance of the ruin. So the fact that it was this abandoned space prior to that moment is not lost in the redesign. You still get that sense of it when you're up there. When MoMA had hired Diller, Scafidio, and Renfo, they had already um, made plans to purchase uh, a museum that's immediately adjacent to MoMA, the American Folk Art Museum, and to demolish it um, in order to make space for their new expansion. To their credit, Diller, Scafidio, and Renfro asked MoMA for six months to study the problem to see if there was some way that they could save the Folk Art Museum and incorporate it into their new plans. And they said that um, they tried and tried and tried and tried, but they just couldn't come up with a solution that would allow them to extend the Western Exhibition Galleries into the Folk Art Museum, which is to the west of those galleries, in a way that would... Um, do what it needed to do for the gallery space. So the American Folk Art Museum is done, and what MoMA's going to do is to um, build a new building there that will connect to the permanent exhibition space on the west side of the current property and also create some interesting new spaces. And, you know, aside from the controversy about tearing down the American Folk Art Museum, um, which is a fairly new, not super historic building, but one that... And, and one that actually had a sort of lukewarm critical reception, to be honest, um, but still, you know, one that um, had a really notable facade that people thought was worth preserving. It was a pretty iconic facade. Um, if you've been to MoMA, you probably remember it. It's like this huge um, sort of wall. It's pretty interesting. Um, the other controversy um, about MoMA's renovation is what they're going to do with these new spaces that they're building. So they're setting aside... Um, space not only to expand the exhibition galleries but also to create new spaces um, that would be used for example for performance art that space will be a, a glass walled gallery that will open directly onto 53rd street um, and so part of what they're going to do actually is they're going to make some of this area uh, public um, and then also turn the the sculpture garden into a public space and I think in fact they've already done that um so now you can they don't take your tickets until after you start going up to the second floor now so the the sculpture garden is a public space and then you'll have this this glass walled space that will open onto 53rd and be a public space for performance art um the rest of the building apparently will have a lot of glass um a lot of uh corridors with sort of one long wall and as critics have pointed out this is not really good if, again, the primary museum mission is to display works of art. And I say again because it's the exact same issue with the Frick. What is the goal of this museum? You know, on the one hand, it is going to be definitely expanding its space for showing art. Um, but on the other hand, we have to ask what kind of space, what kind of environment, what kind of feeling, atmosphere are they creating? Um, 
glass walls are really, really bad for museums. They look cool. They're great for hotels, but you can't hang a painting on a glass wall. Um, it's a problem. You can't really hang anything on a you glass You can't really wall. hang anything on a glass wall. And so it's got this sort of clean, minimalist aesthetic, but it's really bad for looking at art, not to mention the fact that all of that sunlight also creates problems, both from a conservation perspective and from a, a spectatorship perspective. It's, you know, lots of natural light can create, for example, with oil painting, a glare that makes it actually harder to see the object rather than easier. And as for that performing arts space, you know, MoMA has been at the vanguard of making performance um, a really hot medium in contemporary art. Now, performance art is, I think, a, a obviously totally legitimate um, medium of contemporary art. I have no problems with that. It's a very um, interesting and can sometimes be a very political um, type of art as well. The thing about performance art is that it does represent a shift in how we look at art. Um, it doesn't always encourage the same kind of deep looking that we associate with looking at a, a painting or a sculpture or a photograph or even a film. There is a kind of anxiety about MoMA privileging performance now as its public face, as what it offers for free to the people who walk by on the street. It just goes back to the, the question that Tina's um, you know, been discussing, which is what is, the, what is the purpose of this space ultimately? Is it for public programming? Is it for um, better, better opportunities to actually see the works? Um, you know, we'll just have to see what happens with these other renovations. I think most people would say that it's okay if it's both. Like mm -hmm. even the detractors of these plans, they would understand that a museum has to fulfill these other functions. It's got education, it's got administration, you know, it needs to be an event space um, so they can fundraise, et cetera, et cetera. The question is the balance, mm -hmm. right? How are we going to keep these, these different directives um, in some type of equilibrium? And, and what should the ratio be? Mm -hmm. And I think the general consensus is, is that museums keep on messing this up. Mm -hmm. They keep on hiring architects or um, letting the board of trustees advise them um, in a way that pushes them you know, towards a disequilibrium. As always, if you want to read more about these construction controversies, you can find links on our uh, website, arthistory.today. We would also really love to hear from you guys. If you have any feedback, any thoughts about this controversy, where do you stand? You can let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash art history today or through our Twitter account, twitter.com slash art today. Mm -hmm.